This podcast is sponsored by the Evie Clinic. Preparation for life. Welcome to the Baby Tribe podcast, where we will explore the beautiful chaos of parenthood and discover the joys and challenges of nurturing our little ones. We are your hosts, Katie Mugan and Afif El Kafash. Each week, we'll bring you the latest information on all things to do with parenting and delve into insightful conversations with experienced parents to bring you practical tips, heartwarming stories, and a dose of laughter that every parent can relate to. So grab your coffee, find a cozy spot, and join us as we embark on this unforgettable journey of parenthood together. Welcome to the Baby Tribe. What cozy spot is a parent going to find? Just put on your ear pods and out you go for that walk and you'll get to tune in and listen to myself and Afif talking everything small babies related. Let's get to it. Welcome back everyone to this week's episode. Afif, how are you doing this week? I'm doing very, very, very well. There's something special on tonight. Are you excited, Afif? I am actually very excited. Tonight is the Irish Podcast Awards and um, I don't think we've mentioned this before. (laughs) (laughs) No, Afif, you haven't. I'm non-stop. But no, we are really excited, aren't we? Are you all set? Yes, I'm all set. So um, I've got my clothes picked out. Anna's got her clothes picked out. You've got your clothes picked out. And it's going to be a fabulous evening of it is. mingling with the best podcasts in the country. And I feel really bad because I actually asked my sister, um, was she coming with me? Because usually Jim, we're busy with kids and we can't both go to the events. But I generally assume he doesn't want any part of it. And then when I told him I'd ask my sister, he was gutted. He's like, I cannot believe you didn't ask me. He was dying. He loves podcasts. And I was like, well, I'm sorry. I know because you actually don't listen to podcasts, ironically enough. Do you know what? I don't. I, I, I've i never gotten into them, um, but you know what I actually do think as well, I just don't have time. And when I've got any some sort of quiet time, I hate, I don't want noise in my head. I, I don't know if that makes sense, right? Yeah. But I, think, I don't mean it's noise. I just mean for me to wind down, I spend so much time on social media or things like that, that a podcast doesn't kind of. I listen to podcasts all the time. Yeah, so does Jim. I was like, on what? He Everything and anything. Everything and anything. I love, I love Irish podcasts, actually. So, yeah. Well, I have to tell you this now, because I just thought of it now. Jim said, he came in the other day, it was probably about a week ago, and he said, do you know what? I listened to your podcast. And I went, sorry. And he goes, it just kicked off, obviously, in the car, and he started listening to it, because generally he, he, he hears enough of my voice. But he said, he actually gave his compliment. He goes, it's very well edited. He goes, I listen to podcasts all the time. It's very well done. You know, that means so much. Because no. I, I, I do all the editing myself <laughs> and I always worry, I always worry about competing against, you know, the podcasts that have a production team and an editing team and a producing team and all of that. And I always feel I've got that I've got imposter syndrome, that our podcast sounds like crap. Well, I have to give it to you, Afif, because I, guys, I'll be fully honest. I turn up here every every time we do to the recordings. Afif does everything behind the scenes. So I give him a little bit of praise here yeah. uh, because so, he deserves it. So so I always I always feel a lot more excited when someone comes to me say I love the editing instead yeah. of I love the content the content is of course <laughs> <laughs> very important and this is why we do it but when somebody comes and gives me a compliment on the production and the editing I I, I get you no he was he was very impressed yeah thank you very much what so are we, yeah. what are we going to talk about today Fief? so it's winter yeah we're it's, in the throes of it we're in the throes of it there's coughs and colds and everything and there's always pressure on prescribing antibiotics And there's a lot of myths about the use of antibiotics um, over the winter months and throughout the year that I think we need to debunk. Great. So did you know that the vast majority of antibiotic prescribing actually happens in the community rather than in the hospital? Yes. So a lot of antibiotic use actually happens 
outside the hospital setting, chest infections or acute respiratory tract infections actually account for more than two thirds of the reason for prescribing antibiotics. But we know that 80 to 90% of respiratory tract infections are actually caused by viruses, viruses rather than bacteria, and antibiotics do not work against viruses. Why are we talking about this? We're talking about this because the excessive use of antibiotics can lead to a lot of problems, and antibiotics aren't without their side effects. So what does antibiotic exposure do to you? Why are we talking about this? Well, before we do that, I think it's important to learn about how antibiotics work, because I think a lot of people don't know how do antibiotics get rid of bacteria. And I think understanding some of the mechanisms behind how antibiotics work, I think make us respect them a bit better. So antibiotics work in various ways to combat bacterial infections. So and here are some of the common mechanisms of action, meaning how do they work? So a lot of the antibiotics work by attacking the bacterial cell wall. So they attack the wall that surrounds the bacterial cells and destroys them. And because bacteria depend on having an intact wall structure to stay alive, attacking that wall leads them to die. So if you kind of burst that wall, everything leaks out and the bacteria can no longer survive. They can also interfere with protein synthesis. So what do I mean by that? They inhibit the bacteria from manufacturing essential proteins that are necessary for their survival. So they go in and attack the mechanisms or the enzymes that are responsible for making essential proteins. They can actually also disrupt DNA replication. So it stops the bacteria from dividing and multiplying. And then finally, one of the other kind of common mechanisms is that the interruption of all the other metabolic pathways. So they stop the enzymes within the bacteria from working. So if you hear all of that, I'm hoping that you begin to realize that they're not a benign thing to give to somebody. And given the fact that they work like that, they may have some of these actions may also have an impact on our own cells and also our own bacteria that reside in our gut. We know, unfortunately, that the use of antibiotics is associated with a lot of side effects. So we know that they can lead to what we call as end organ toxicities. They can be, they can affect the kidney function, the liver function, the ear function. Because of the mechanisms by which they kill bacteria, those mechanisms can actually work on our own cells. We know that we can sometimes mount an allergic reaction against antibiotics. We can actually impact the division of our cells that are essential for survival, like our red blood cells or white blood cells and things like that. And they can also have a profound impact on one of my favorite things that I talk about all the time, which what is... What could that be? What FB? could that be? So our microbiome, our gut microbiome. So there's a lot of data that suggests that antibiotic exposure, especially when frequent or occurring in early life, can promote something called intestinal dysbiosis, which means that they can affect the normal growth and the diversity of the microbiome or all the bacteria that reside within our gut. So if you're taking antibiotics all the time or frequently for frequent chest infections, for example, it can actually affect the makeup of the microbiome for a potentially prolonged period of time. And we know that an unhealthy microbiome leads to the development of disease later on in life. We spoke about this a lot um, throughout the series, so it can lead to inflammatory bowel disease, a higher risk of asthma and also a higher risk of diabetes and arthritis and things like that. So it's important that we have a healthy approach to the use of antibiotics. I'm not saying this to discourage people from using antibiotics when they are necessary, 
but we need to think twice about their regular or routine use. And we know that the use of antibiotics is going up all the time. I think, though, I suppose medical practitioners can be under pressure as well when you think about it, because when a parent goes to the doctor with a sick child, you want a cure, you want an immediate and I think people just assume that the antibiotic is going to cure, but you have to realize what you're what you're fighting. So, yes, it's going to have an impact if it's a bacterial infection, but if it's viral, you're taking an antibiotic with no purpose. Yeah. And I think knowing this information can empower parents to, I suppose, not to expect to be given an antibiotic if the healthcare provider genuinely thinks that this is a viral infection. And also we as healthcare providers need to not bow down to the pressure. Yep. of giving an antibiotic when we genuinely feel that it is not needed. One of the biggest problems associated with the frequent and unnecessary use of antibiotics that I was about to touch on is the notion of antibiotic resistance. So what does that mean? It means that bacteria can eventually find ways to circumvent those mechanisms of actions that I've spoken about. So if we, for example, use antibiotics frequently, it may kill 99.9% of the bacteria that we target, but that 0.1% that, that may have evolved or mutated in a way that make them resistant to the effects of that antibiotic, what happens to them? Those are the bugs that end up multiplying. So the notion of antibiotic resistance is because of natural selection. So if we use antibiotics frequently or if we don't finish the course, and we'll talk about those bits um, in a bit, you can promote the multiplication of resistant bacteria and what can happen is that you can spread them from one person to another and the amount of bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics can multiply and there's always this concern that this is a real risk that we are dealing with at the moment and the increase in multi-drug resistant infections so these are bacteria that are resistant to so many different drugs and um, that this is actually outpacing our ability to develop novel antibiotics that are capable of treating them. And that's a scary thought. It is. And we know that antibiotic resistance can be problematic in certain hospital settings, in, you know, cancer wards yeah. and in wards where um, individuals may be immune compromised and things like that. So it's very important to have antibiotics. So what are the myths that are associated with antibiotic use? Okay, so the first myth that I hear all the time is antibiotics can treat viral infections. Yes, and that's important to emphasize that antibiotics only work against bacteria rather than viruses. So the mechanism of actions that are spoken about don't affect viruses. And when we realize that up to 90% of the common infections and fevers that happen in babies over the first year of age are caused by viruses rather than bacteria, then you realize how we can potentially overuse bacteria in this cohort. Another thing that I hear time and time again, as I'm sure you will, Afif, um, is when parents think it's okay to stop taking for them to stop giving the antibiotics to their infant once they are feeling better. Yes, and that's actually thank you for bringing that up. That's a very important thing to emphasize. Babies can bounce back very quickly, so the antibiotics can begin to work. You know, within 24, 48 hours, and. You and I know how much of a pain in the butt it can be sometimes to give antibiotics to parents. And the inclination is to sometimes think, oh, you know what? I've given the baby three days out of five or out of seven, and it might stop now because the baby's getting better. That's a problem because you may then be promoting the development of resistant bacteria that may have 
somewhat kind of skirted the initial exposure to the antibiotics, but a more prolonged exposure will kind of get rid of them. And you may not eradicate the infection. So the baby may get well enough when the infection becomes what we call a subclinical. But then if you stop early, it exacerbates. It comes back and it comes back maybe more resistant to the antibiotics. So please always, always finish the course that you were given. And this is one where I think all the older population will definitely um, have something to say about leftover antibiotics that you that they keep for future illnesses down the line. Throw them in the bin. <laughs> so once you finish an antibiotic, do not save it in the fridge in case a sibling gets sick or in case somebody else gets sick. That is actually dangerous for a variety of reasons. We talk about, um, you know, specificity in giving the antibiotic. The sibling may be suffering from something else. It could be a viral infection. The dose could be wrong for a younger child. So you could be potentially overdosing or underdosing or underdosing. It may not be effective. It'll be the wrong antibiotic. It could expire. So never keep antibiotics after giving them to your child. Please chuck the remainder if there's any remainder in the bin. Um, another one, and I hear this actually um, chat amongst friends as well quite a bit. You know, if you see really your, your child is quite sick and, you know, they're trying to really fight an illness. The stronger the antibiotic, the better. And again, that's not a good approach because we talk about the specificity. There's There are antibiotics that are called broad spectrum. So they hit as many bacteria as possible. And there are antibiotics that are, are a specific, specific to a particular bug. If you know what is wrong with the child and have a high degree of suspicion as to the kind of bacteria that is causing it, and we sort of know which bacteria cause what, by and large, giving the specific antibiotic is much better than giving a broad spectrum a broad spectrum one because that can promote resistance and that can have a bigger effect on your microbiome as well so it may you know a broad spectrum antibiotic does not hit just all the bad bacteria it will get rid of all the good bacteria in your gut as well and that's not a good approach to have the next one i think you've kind of already hit a little bit on but antibiotics have no side effects yeah and we've spoken about that and there are a lot of potential side effects of antibiotics as well that we need to be aware of did you know actually that 50 percent of ane admissions due to an overdose of a drug are because of an antibiotic so i didn't know that actually yeah so exactly so if you present to ane because of an overdose of a drug 50 percent of the chance that drug is likely to be an antibiotic so that can happen the other potential big side effect that i haven't mentioned yet is the promotion of a bug called clostridium which is not really affected by a lot of the common antibiotics we use. So it can potentially increase the chances of this bug developing in your cut, giving you a secondary tummy infection. So again, antibiotics are not without their risks. Their risks. So how do we actually make this better? There's something called antibiotic stewardship, which basically means really thinking through why we're giving the antibiotics and have a good and healthy approach to it. The onus isn't just on doctors to have good antibiotic stewardship, the parents as well. Things like finishing the antibiotic course is very important. Discarding the old antibiotics and not use overusing them again. And from a healthcare setting, really have a frank discussion with your healthcare provider about the necessity yeah. of the use. Don't be pushing your doctor or your overworked GP to give your baby an antibiotic if they genuinely feel that this is viral. There's always room for monitoring and yes. then coming back if things don't improve. 
I was just about to jump in there and say your GP will always advise if the child disimproves or doesn't improve within a period of time, then that's why we have free uh, free GP care now is that if you feel that the child is not improving or there's any other complication, go back. And sometimes it may develop, there may be an underlying bacterial element, but in the early stages, oftentimes, as you said, the majority of illnesses are viral in that uh, younger age yes, group. And it's always worth trying to do a culture, meaning if you feel that there is a kidney infection, for example, if you feel that you have a strep throat, don't just automatically assume that it's a strep throat, for example, do the swab and only treat if you come back with the results or if the child doesn't get any better. Oftentimes you can gauge ear infections. I see antibiotics being prescribed for ear infections all the time. The majority of those are viral as well. So these are the kind of things that we need to do both as healthcare providers and also as parents, parents to try and improve the use of antibiotics. Well said. So we're going to move on to our guest. And who do we have today, Fief? On today's episode, we have Siobhan O'Higgin as our guest. Siobhan is an online fitness and nutrition coach, helping thousands of women remove the frustration around diet and exercise. She recently had her first baby and is now living in Dublin after spending a couple of years living mainly in Bali and Thailand. Siobhan is qualified in pre and postnatal nutrition training, and I'm sure we're going to have a riveting conversation about all aspects to do with her parenting and her expertise in perinatal exercise. This episode of the Baby Tribe podcast is sponsored by the Evie Clinic. Evie offers personalized multidisciplinary care in a state-of-the-art environment ranging from consultants, high-end scanning and prenatal screening to expert advice on diet, exercise and mental health. The Evie's team of world-class consultants in obstetrics, gynecology and pediatrics provide the highest standards of care for you and your baby. Contact Evie today on 01293-3984 or visit the website at evie.ie for more information. Siobhan, thank you so much for coming on the Baby Tribe podcast. I've been meaning to ask you to be a guest on this show for a long time because I know you have a lot to say that will resonate with a lot of mamas that listen to the show. Oh, thank you. I actually was delighted to be asked. I've listened to, I think, pretty much all of the episodes and it has really helped me because I hadn't a clue what I was doing. Yeah, so they're really great. I've been sharing them with my friends and my sister was pregnant at the same time. I'm like, you need to listen to this one. You need to listen to this one. And they're they're brilliant. We always love hearing that it's helping, um, you know, parents along the way. So can before we start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh God, as you say, I could talk a lot. Um, Yeah, I'm a new mother. Uh, As someone said to me the other other day, it's like you're an 11 week old mother. And I was like, oh yeah, that's true. I've never thought of it like that. You know, like I'm quite, she's like, you're very new to this. I was like, yeah, 13 weeks um, or sorry, 12 weeks on Thursday. Um, And uh, before that, I was living this life of being, you know, digital nomad, living on the beach in Bali and, and I actually, I always said I didn't want kids. And I was talking about it with a friend earlier and I mean, I always say, I think I just got a bit older, but also my values changed and my living situation changed. And now it's the best thing I've ever done. Um, and yes, I'm a personal trainer, online coach. Um, I am very passionate about helping women remove frustration with uh, training and diet culture and the way that we're affected, especially women my age and older, of how we're conditioned to all these crazy diet rules. So I try and show my life online how you can live normally and still look after your health, look after your fitness. And I'm very passionate now about uh, sharing the message of looking after your body for long-term health. And obviously that stood by me during pregnancy. And um, I want to uh, 
have that strength and fitness as I'm older and I want to encourage other people to do that as well. Uh, so that's a little bit about me. I don't know. I could go into I could go into any of those tangents. You've actually highlighted a lot of the things that I wanted to ask you about. So that's great. But before we talk about Siobhan, the personal trainer, I'd love to explore Siobhan, the mum. Did you feel prepared for your baby's arrival? Yeah, I think. Well, sure. I was like at 35 weeks. I'm like any day now. Um, and then like when you went, I was 10 days over when I finally was induced. So I felt ready in that I had gotten the checklists you know the hospital bag had that packed I think from 35 weeks and had the pram built ready to go um so I think I think I had so much time during the pregnancy to get prepared but I mean I, I you know Kyla was a surprise so I, I, I wasn't ready to be pregnant so like I, I suppose I was probably more confused at the start of the pregnancy what I should be doing, what I can do, what I can't do, what my life is going to look like. And that that's when I started following mommy bloggers or, I don't know, whatever you want to call them, or just even women who were pregnant as well, because I really didn't have a clue. And I think because I'd been traveling the last few, year, few years, I wasn't even around my friends having babies. So I really didn't, like I hadn't, I hadn't changed a nappy at all. So I really felt like I had to do my homework when I was pregnant. So I, I had a lot of time to do that. So I did read a lot of books and, you know, listen to podcasts and tried to prepare myself as much as possible. Um, but I suppose you can never really describe what it's actually like. So what, what actually surprised you the most? How much she slept, I think. Because I think I was like, how am I going to have time to do anything? And then she actually, as a newborn, was just asleep a lot of the time. And I was like, oh, this is great. Um, now, the nights, the first, and, and I think she was a good sleeper from the start. You know, like I was breastfeeding and that was, uh, yeah, like I think I still found it not too bad. You know, I, th- I think I was surprised of how much I enjoyed the newborn stage. I think a lot of people had scared me off it and, you know, had got me stressed about it when it's actually like such a nice time um especially when you just make sure you have no plans and that you're you're okay being up half the night if it means you can sleep when the baby's sleeping and um like those couple of weeks were just lovely I think you know I was tired but it was just really nice and you mentioned that you relied on social media to help you get ready to becoming a parent was that an important aspect because I know you're very prolific on social media yourself and you help a lot of mums and also women that aren't parents in terms of their fitness journey. Did you find that following mums like that was was helpful? Because I know another guest also spoke about the support and the family that exists on social media, because a lot of the time social media is criticized. But sometimes I like to highlight the benefits of, of, of social media and how it can actually help. Yeah, I have found it so helpful for me since having the baby and even being pregnant. And I think I've actually found even though my following has probably around stayed the same, but I've had so many, I've, I've just related, I think, to I suppose my followers a lot more because a lot of them were, you know, my age and having babies and starting families. And I find it so helpful, even just looking for advice. I can just put up a question box and be like, what toy does she need? And I'll get so many people sending me advice. And I, you have to, I do think with social media, there is, you have to be careful though as well, because, you know, no one's experts, you know, well, maybe except you. Um, but we, you know, some someone recommended me a toy last night and I shared it. I said, oh, loads of people recommended this. And then I had someone else say, oh God, the midwives don't recommend that toy because of this and this. And I was like, oh, right. And I'd be worried, you know, about spreading misinformation or, you know, something that's not beneficial. So I kind of have to be careful, I think, a little bit with social media and who you're following and, you know, what they're advising. And I'd be very 
you know, I try and be skeptical of what I'm reading. But then in terms of community, it's been brilliant. You know, a few people had babies around the same time as me that I knew. And especially when you're up breastfeeding in the middle of the night, just messaging, being like, how are you getting on? How are you getting on? And um, you have to be careful, of course, not to compare. Uh, and I used to say to everyone, like, oh, Kyla was, she was 10 days late. So I always think she was a bit older, you know, than someone else that was born on the same week, but two weeks premature. Um, so I try not to, I don't know, like I'm kind of showing what she's up to, but I hope people aren't comparing and I'm trying not to compare to anyone else. You bring up a very important um, aspect of how to deal with social media, and it's actually having the ability to critically appraise the information that you see. I mean, you can't control what people share. And if you then have a thought process behind it and saying, OK, is this the right thing to do? Or if something that you may have shared that transpires to be not an appropriate thing to have shared, it's that's OK. And it's important to actually have that process where you say, look, I was misinformed and this is what you should do and things like that. So I think this is a healthy aspect, I think, of social media interaction. Moving on, I want to ask you about you share your fitness regime you know, on your social media now. And I wanted to ask you, how do you now manage your approach to fitness and also your professional commitments while being a new parent? Oh, well, to be fair, Kyla's dad is great. Like he's he's here today and he works, we're both self-employed. So in terms of professional commitments, it's difficult because we both couldn't, you know, just take parental leave and maternity leave. So, but we're both flexible. So we try and um, have a schedule for the week. So I'll know that I've got a couple hours on Tuesday and Thursday to go to CrossFit, which is luckily around the corner. Um, But they also were doing a postnatal class. Uh, It's funny, I actually thought I would be rushing back into it because I, I, I kept my CrossFit up until the end of the pregnancy. And I... I suppose I took two full months off and I thought I was going to be dying to get back to it but you're just so busy like I I, I just didn't see where it would fit in and um, but I started with a postnatal class I actually sorry first what I, what I always recommend my clients to do is to go see a women's health physio and I really really wish it was handed to people or like in the public system I wish it was part of the the follow-up care and um, obviously I was lucky enough to be able to afford to pay a physio um but it's so important because your pelvic floor, like there's so much goes on. And that's why I'm even so hesitant to show, to give out um, like postnatal workouts, even though I am qualified, but it's, everyone's so different and you don't know what kind of damage is done is down there. And if you don't do the correct exercises and you just start, I don't know, something like running again, that could be a lot of, you could be doing more damage and delaying the healing process and, you know, possibly causing long-term issues. So any clients that sign up to the furnace, I always say, ideally, you know, you don't want to force another cost on them, but try, I try and emphasize the importance of going to see a women's health physio for an internal checkup, because then you'll get instruction, you know, you'll get instructions on what you're supposed to do for your healing um, but personally, yeah, I so I was I was fine. Luckily enough, um, there was like one or two things that Aoife said, Aoife Harvey, I went to, she's brilliant. I She said it should heal naturally and to come back uh, within six months and to just, she said, lay off any kind of jumping and running for until 12 weeks. And I was like, grand, I have no interest in running. <laughs> but um, I went back to the postnatal classes in Perpetua, which were great because you could bring the baby, which was, that's probably the biggest barrier I have now is being able to train when I've got a baby and just having the time or someone to watch her. And so those classes were lovely and obviously for meeting people. And, but I think, I think my fitness 
stood to me a good bit. I mean, the fitness that I kept up and I kind of wanted a bit more of a challenge. So that's why I arranged to make sure I had time to do the actual CrossFit classes. Um, and even then, I'm just still taking it easy. I, like my actual cardio fitness has dropped so much since like I, I feel like I was fitter when I was pregnant I feel like the two months off have really my fitness has dropped so um it's not frustrating if anything and I got something to work on something to improve um and it's funny like saying all this the last thing I've thought of is the shape of my body whereas for years my whole Instagram was transformation pictures and bikini photos and just like this is what I look like and I, to be honest I I, I was passionate about sharing how you could do it healthily and you know how I had done it and wanted to help other people but I'm very conscious of that postnatally not to be showing how my body has changed since I've had the baby and you know naturally people will see changes and I think I'm actually surprised how much my body has changed myself but that I and, and what I'm hoping by by showing this and not by by not flagging it you know I, I'm trying to show that if you just look after your health and fitness with the kind of long-term strength goals in mind with the you know I just want to do jujitsu so that's why I'm like I have to get my fitness back it's not because of the shape of my body and that's just something personally I've realized how much I've grown or maybe matured uh, that you know I've got different goals now um you know, it's about being able to be fit and healthy in my old age and to be able to do my sports. So, yeah, that's where I'm at now. And then trying to work around it as well. You've brought up a very important point in that. And we've explored this in, in a previous episode where there's the societal focus in terms of the bounce back after pregnancy, in terms of how you look rather than how you feel. And you're doing a great job in moving the needle away from focusing on how you look to focusing on how you feel and your recovery and how you look will generally does follow afterwards as well. Um, you've been very open and vocal about your personal story of struggling with getting in shape. So how has that shaped your approach as a trainer now? Yeah, so I think it's really helped me. Like I did have, I think, disorder. I've never been diagnosed, but I definitely had like disordered eating habits back in 2017 after I did a bodybuilding competition. And I, I'm always saying, I always say I'm glad I did it because it taught me so much about how a lot of people think when it comes to their nutrition, their relationship with their body, all these crazy diet rules they have in their head that they're that they apply without actually considering why they do it. So I'm very passionate now about like I, I, my online coaching program. It does help people get in shape, but what it does more than anything, and what I, my goal is, is to remove the frustration for people. So to like, give people peace of mind, and that so there's a whole mindset section and. I think when you're clear on what's important to you, it can help you make decisions. So, you know, setting values, setting goals based on those values and then realizing, you know, for me now, yeah, ideally, I'd love to get back to feeling as lean as I was this time last year. And and it's OK to say that, you know, like it's, it's kind of all this um, acceptance. We do a lot of journaling, but then also accepting that my life is very different now, that I don't have time to go to CrossFit at 7 a.m. every morning, that I'm not doing jujitsu four times a week that my diet is different because I've, I'm either forgetting to eat or eating too much or I'm tired and I want a pizza and I have it. But also my health is such a priority now. And I actually wanted to talk about it the other day. I had, um, I, I kind of, I roughly look at calories. I also have a, a very good understanding of it, obviously doing nutrition. Um, but it's a very good example of, I had a big bowl from a salad place here where I got, you know, it was loads of beans, fiber, chicken, like basically loads of good food. 
but I want I actually meant to share this on Instagram to show like that you know this is probably a thousand calories plus but my values and goals at the moment are health and recovery and you know that isn't always the same thing but I'm okay with having a slower rate of fat loss when I have my goal of health at the forefront Um, and I think people struggle with that they have this thing at the back of their head where they always think they're supposed to be losing weight uh, even though they might deep down not actually really, really want it enough. And that's okay. Like, that's what I always say to people. You don't want it enough, but that's okay. You have other priorities in your life. It's just about accepting that it's, it's not your priority and it removes then the frustration around not losing weight. I hope that makes sense. But uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of mindset work to get around uh, acceptance, acceptance of where you're at right now. And, and, and then obviously teaching people information around nutrition around training and what they need to do to get to where they want to be and then they decide if they're willing to make those changes to their life you know like I could get leaner now if I cut out chocolate or pizza but I'm just not willing to um and that's acceptance you know it's like okay that's I'm gonna have a slower rate of fat loss and that's fine it makes perfect sense and it's a great segue into my into my next question and you've talked about this on your page recently in that we all have different goals that we want to achieve when we embark on a fitness journey, some of us want to feel better, um, be healthier, live longer. But some of us, let's accept, also want to look better. And you, you mentioned how some of your clients almost are afraid or shy away from saying that one of their goals is to actually look better. Yeah, it's like the internet has gone from one extreme to the other. You know, it used to be all about, especially Instagram when I first started, was just about physique. And that's how I ended up doing bodybuilding. It was just like... Instagram did well with images, images. And now there's the anti-diet message is very loud. And um, and I think it's a very good place for it, especially to undo all the diet culture that we have ingrained in us. But I think there still needs to be a space for people who say, I've got a holiday next year or I've got a wedding next year and I want to get lean or leaner or whatever. And I've, I've, I definitely have clients who say that they're afraid. They, they, in their questionnaires, they'd be like, uh, you know, I do want to get stronger and feel better, but I, sorry, but I actually do want to drop a size. And I'm like, that's okay. What the problem is, or the problem I see is when they're doing it in, in unhealthy ways or using unhealthy methods to get to these goals. And that's what I try to discourage. So I try and have that middle ground between extreme dieting and then the other end of the scale would be like, say the anti-diet brigade who are just like, accept yourself as you are and that's it. They almost see like dieting or exercising for fat loss as detrimental and it can be for some people that's the thing that's the there just needs to be a nuance around it there some people are you know have disordered eating habits and by going into a diet it can push them into an eating disorder and I just we have to be like responsible coaches and what and look out for that um, and then refer them on um, I see too many people you know offering to help with binge eating when it's just not in your scope of practice like you need to be like a registered dietitian so sorry the, it is very possible to change your body in a healthy way it's just that it takes time and it takes consistency and you know that just doesn't sell very well on Instagram um, I also don't like using transformation photos because it's just not relatable to what other people you know someone's transformation has nothing to do with yours and you don't know what's actually going on behind it so I think you can change your body but I just think understanding the importance of looking after your health and strength and if you can tie that in with a fat loss goal, 
that that's the ideal uh, situation because fat loss is very easy. You know, you just stop eating tomorrow and you know, everything will shut down, but you'll start losing body fat. And it's trying to find that balance of like not putting your body under too much stress, but also just in a very slight calorie deficit so that you're losing body body fat in a way that's healthy and sustainable. You actually answered my follow-up question as well, which is fantastic. You are one of the few um, accounts in fitness that I follow because I think you provide an amazing balance and a really, really good approach. It's funny though, I don't actually don't feel like I'm a fitness account. You know, like I used to be, but now I feel like I just show what I'm up to every day. But obviously fitness is a huge part of my life. And that's really what I want to try and get across is that like fitness, it's not a phase that you go through. It's not like if I think it needs to be a part of your environment. It needs to be a part of what you do to actually get the long-term benefits instead of, you know, the 12-week transformation where you just go hard for 12 weeks. I think that's why I show my life and my life really involves fitness because of it adds, you know, it adds value to my life. It's one of the strategies that you're following to build an online presence is that you're using your digital platform to connect and inspire your audience rather than bombard them with this is what you have to do. I mean, I suppose I was that's what I'm getting at is that you're providing through your strategy a great balance on how to approach things by showing what you do on a on a day to day. Thank you. I want to move on to focus briefly on um, prenatal and postnatal exercise, because a lot of our listeners are either mums that are pregnant or mums that have just had a baby. So I want to ask you about what are the common misconceptions about prenatal and postnatal exercise? So what do you wish more women knew about fitness during this phase? Yeah, I wish we knew exactly why the recommendations are given, because then you can make decisions based on you, on your own body and your ability, because even like I had done the prenatal course. And when I realized I was pregnant, I had just forgotten everything. I just was like, what do I do again? What can I, am I allowed to do? What? Like straight away, I was like, okay, a lot of it is common sense for prenatal. Um, obviously you don't, you, you remove your uh, combat sports, um, anything would impact your stomach. And then there was a few other rules that I feel like I implemented too early, like not lying on my back, uh, which I only, I mean, there was a rule like no lying flat and it's only realize, I realized later on that this is latest when the baby presses down on the, the nerves and the heart and it can prevent um, or it can cause breathing issues. So I was like, OK, there was no need for me to cut out bench pressing from week six, you know, um, it's, and it's about like listening to your body, like knowing that you can like I was able because I had a strong pelvic floor, I was still doing I was still skipping um, in CrossFit workouts uh, until, but then where other people would, I actually spoke to, I was, I was skipping and a, a lady was like, how are you skipping? She's like, I couldn't even skip now and I'm not pregnant because of incontinence. Um, again, I was, my body was able to keep up skipping. Someone else, any kind of jumping needs to be removed earlier on. For me, it was like when I started feeling heavier, I removed skipping, jumping. Um, and then another rule of thumb is uh, just um, any impact so like any risk of falling so that's where skipping might also be well I mean I was only doing very light if you're going to trip over a skipping rope if you're going to do a box jump and you're going to trip if you're going to fall off a horse you know all these kind of considerations again it's common sense um but actually one day early on I was doing jog I was part of the workout was 200 meter jog and I was like 200 meters fine but then someone tripped outside on because it was wet and I was like actually no I'll just stay inside and go on the bike and so common sense there and then when it comes to like your core, you want to just, again, a lot of it I thought was like to protect the baby. It's actually nearly to protect your core muscles. So, you know, the linea alba is the 
uh, connective tissue between your abs and that'll expand as the, as your belly expands um, and you just want to try not to excessively stretch that because that stretches and it'll hopefully come back to I mean for some people it doesn't and that's Dias recti I can never say that word um, Dior um, and so you want to try and prevent that getting as stretched as possible so that's removing any kind of big twists and obviously then as as the baby grows you don't be doing big twists in the core as well but you can still do uh, isometric holds like plank uh, but again as you're getting heavier you can feel that pulling down and you might you know drop down to your knees but again it, it's just understanding why it's happening and not just being like okay no plank from day one you know that's because that's what I was doing I was googling what you can and can't do using uh, weight machines is that okay? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they say, to, you know, to not keep up or to not start anything new in pregnancy. So everything should be run by your GP or your, your health provider. But a lot of, I mean, weight training, it's so beneficial in the long run, you know, for having uh, the strength and like even your body like is carrying a huge weight. Your pelvis is tilted. Your lower back is going to be strained. So like having a strong core and strong body in general is is obviously really beneficial for pregnancy and even then I was still so heavy and slow and everything at the end it's funny I still managed to go and do a workout but then the walk back from the gym which is only five minutes was so difficult um so it's kind of finding what what feels comfortable um and I sorry one thing I didn't mention was cardio so the the rule of thumb has changed over the years as I've learned like they used to say not to go over 140 bpm which is for me a very light jog like if I was doing any exercise it would go over that but then more recently they used a a rate of perceived exertion of seven to eight out of ten and which is so subjective you know like so if you're to go to about 70 percent obviously that's different that would feel different to everyone and but I think that was a good rule of thumb but then recently or in, in the last year, there was a study done on pregnant women where they monitored the mother's heart rate and the fetal heart rate and had them training to maximum heart rate. And basically, maximum maximal heart rate training seemed to be OK on the, in this study. And I kind of I wouldn't I wasn't quick to tell any clients to do that. But, you know, because it's relatively new, it's a small study. But personally, I did like I was doing, you know, I was going hard on, on the on the cardio machines in, in the workouts, just feeling like I knew that if I, I just knew when to slow down. But again, it's I think but I would I, I would trust your trust your body. That's the advice I would give to women is like if it feels like too much, it probably is. Um and if it feels like too little, it probably is, you know, like, know that you can challenge yourself. You're not injured. You're not sick. I do think it's helped. I have a little, I feel like I have a little athlete now on the, on the mats. But I think what you're saying is important to highlight that it's not a sweeping recommendation that applies to all because everybody's different, you know, working within your own limits, you know, when your body's exerted, um, provided you adhere to the safety uh, guidelines in that you know don't pick something where you might be at risk of falling or at risk of injuring yourself and that is sound advice to me I mean you said yourself you know cardio is okay provided you use a machine where you know you're comfortable with it you're not going to fall off and things like that and yeah. that's 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 really sound advice moving on to postnatal did you find that that helped you in your recovery following delivery yeah like it's hard to say because obviously I can't really compare like I've never done yeah. it before but I know that I felt like that I was well able to go back to training. I started, I didn't even do, I did a bit of yoga from week six, I think, or maybe week five. I did like 10 minutes, but I was actually so afraid of, I didn't want to, I was so afraid of like 
doing any damage when I wasn't fully healed because I, w- I was really conscious that I wanted to get back to training. So I was like, I don't want to delay anything. So I, wait, I went to Aoife's women's health physio and she said, she said I was fine, which, which was great. Um, so I, you know, the usual to do my connection breath, um, to make sure that I'm doing the, the pelvic floor exercises. Then in the postnatal classes, there was a lot, there was a, a lot of uh, emphasis on working on the pelvic floor. Um, but I think I, like even just using my own, um, my own common sense as well in the classes now that I'm doing like I there was a bit of skipping and I tried it and I could feel a bit of heaviness I'm like no I'm not ready for that yet so you know it's kind of just knowing what what feels right what doesn't um but in you know I would say the same going to women's health physio after because you know I am postnatal qualified there are uh postnatal classes which I think would be a good place to start I probably didn't do enough of it, but I'm okay. I think I'm in a bit of an exception to the rule because I, so like when, when I'm showing stuff on Instagram, I'm like, don't copy me. You don't have to go straight into a CrossFit class. I'm back doing jujitsu as well, which is great. But I think if you do need to recover, get the exercises off your physio. Um, now like, there's some, like I can definitely give exercises around, you know, doing Kegels, doing bridges, like all these kind of simple exercises just to make sure your pelvic floor is working with your diaphragm. But again, everyone's different. So again, no sweeping statements. Um, it's just yeah, common sense, listening to your body and taking it easy, you know, not doing a lot of um I, I think jogging is one thing that people are it's it's a handy one to do. You know, you leave the house, you get back quick, but that's one of the ones with a lot of impact through the pelvic floor. So just as a warning, anyone, like don't hurry back to that. Like even when they say, even when the doctor says six weeks, you're like, Yeah, you're grand without actually even checking. Uh, they say the, the physios normally say 12 weeks at least for jogging or any kind of jumping exercises um and I'm not even gonna like I'm even, I'm gonna ease myself back into jogging you know like CrossFit is fine but not you know like just I think people think jogging is easy but it's a lot on the on the body um joints and the pelvic floor so just to watch out for that. I want to finally ask you about your online coaching that you offer and the role of research and education in your training methods, you did mention a study recently, so you obviously keep on top of the latest research in terms of, you know, achieving fitness and, 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 and your health. So tell us about Furnace and tell us about the importance of ongoing research in how we modify um, our approach to fitness. Yeah, when I think of the first version of the Furnace that I created, you know, I, I was just a new PT and I had gotten myself lean. I just wanted to sh- tell everyone to exactly what I did. Um, but I've changed over the years. I've re-recorded over the years. Um, so it's an online program. It's 12 weeks of videos on nutrition, mindset and training. Um, I used to have a lot more detailed videos in it, but I've actually reduced it back to keeping it more simple because the majority of people don't need to know, you know, what the latest studies are on carb manipulation. Uh, it's more about supporting them in being consistent over that 12 week process to learn what their body needs and how they, they approach their nutrition around their real life. And so it's, it's not, it's actually not a very complicated program. It's, it's really simple, but our coaches are brilliant and they're very, it's about teaching women how to be compassionate with themselves because we're so hard on ourselves and it's about, you know, learning how to put yourself first. So, you know, so that you can serve others, but also learning how to, how to have a life when you're dieting. Some people think, okay, that's it. I, you know, I'll die, especially now, like everyone wait until January. And, you know, I try to teach people that there's, there's decisions that are made every day that can go one way or the other. And it's, it's okay if, you know, last night I had pizza and 
it means it doesn't mean that you know the diet's out the window for this week you know because I have pizza on a Monday but it just means that this morning I might be like oh I need some more nutrients in my breakfast um, and not I'm not I'm going to skip breakfast because I had pizza last night and it's all these little things that we teach so it's it's as I said it's not it's not a very complicated like I wouldn't say it's a nutrition course it's more taking stripping it back to basics and showing how simple it is to look after your health and fitness and get a bit of fat loss which is okay amazing and and finally um what top tips would you give new parents that are, that are trying to incorporate fitness into their busy lives walking I don't think, you know, everyone wants to go running, but walking again, but that's, I mean, in the first few weeks, that's hard enough because it is still, you know, if you're healing from whatever happens down below, um, walking can be hard, but if you are able to walk, it's such a great way because obviously you can bring the baby. So that's, you can, I was, I've been walking for hours every day. Um, and it, it is, a, if it, if fat loss is a goal, it is a huge factor towards fat loss, even just regulating, um, your body clock, which might be all over the place, just getting out and getting sunshine in the mornings, going for a nice walk. It just helps with your mental health, physical health. Um, and then yoga, I'm a big fan of. And Well, no, I would say Pilates is probably more beneficial for postnatal women. Uh, and again, something that can be done on home, at home that you can just do on an online course on Pilates. Um, and same with yoga. I use an app called Down Dog and just do it with the baby around me then you can look at joining a gym or if you have time look there's and of course home workouts as well um I'm just not a fan of home workouts it gives me like vibes of lockdown um so I'd actually rather do 30 minutes of yoga than 30 minutes of uh home workouts but sometimes you know needs must um and then I suppose you know block off time if you if it's possible to get someone in so that you can have some time to yourself to go and get a good strength training workout in and I think understanding the benefits of strength training might, for the long run, might encourage you to make time for it. So I think understanding why people recommend doing it is important. I mean, even for hormones, for to be able to lift your baby in the long run, to be able to lift your grandkids, all that. Like I'm very passionate about strength training and just looking after your health in general, not just looking at fat loss. And on that note, I think we'll end here, Siobhan. Thank you so much for joining us on the Baby Trap Podcast. I've lots of really important insights and good tips for parents that are trying to embark on a fitness journey thank you so much thank you so much for having me keep up the good work i love the podcast thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the baby tribe podcast we hope you found inspiration and valuable insights to help you on your parenting journey remember you're doing an amazing job thanks for being part of the baby tribe community see you next week